Sermon on the Mount. This is the largest continuous teaching section in all of the Gospels. It doesn't appear in exactly this form in any other Gospel. Mark has a Sermon on the Plain that has some of these teachings. Some of these teachings are just scattered around the other Gospels, around Luke and John. Uh, and so you wonder, how could that be? I mean, did this sermon really happen or not happen? And if Jesus said these things on the mount, then why, does, uh, why do other Gospels have him saying these things in other places? Doesn't that show a contradiction between the Gospels? Doesn't that show that these things can't entirely be trusted? Uh, what's our answer to that? How do you solve the problem of the Sermon on the Mount, so to speak? I like Karen's facial expression, which is, it's not a problem. <laughs> She's right. It's not a problem. Um, think about pastors and teachers you've had in your life. Have they ever taught the same thing twice? Hopefully, yes. Hopefully every teacher you've ever had has used repetition and taught the same thing on multiple occasions. Well, don't you think Jesus did the same thing? Do you think every point Jesus ever made, he only made once and once ever, and he never said it again? Of course not. Jesus preached a lot of sermons. He taught a lot of different crowds. All the Gospels tell us that. There's no reason to believe that just because he said it here on the Mount, he couldn't also have said the same teaching or similar teaching on the plain or in the temple or somewhere else, right? It's not an issue uh, because we expect there to be repetition. And so... The way the Gospels are organized with their different purposes to their different audiences, it would make sense that they would emphasize some teachings and not others. Nobody records every single word Jesus said or thing that he taught. And it would make sense that given the choice, if Jesus said something multiple times between bringing it up at this part of their Gospel or that part of their Gospel, they're going to pick the one where it most fits what they're doing. And so the Sermon on the Mount most fits what Matthew is doing for Matthew's audience, and it's why there's this huge chunk of teaching. So let's answer that. What happens in the gospel leading up to the Sermon on the Mount that establishes the context for the sermon? Where does the context for this come from? And I want you to hear a, a theme. So I'm going to call on you rapid fire to read these verses because I, I want you to hear the theme that's going to repeat over and over again. Matthew 1, 20-23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call him his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 2, 14 and 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, and stayed there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew 2, 16 to 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained the wise men. Then 
was fulfilled that what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew 2, 22-23. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Matthew 3, 1-3. In those days John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Matthew four thirteen through 16. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in the darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, from them a light is What's the theme leading up to? What's the theme that establishes the context of the Sermon on the Mount? Give me the phrase that came over and over again. Every single one of those passages said the same thing. Some form of to fulfill. It was fulfilled. Matthew is setting up Jesus in the Old Testament context. The way we talked about last week. That all of those passages were to point to the Christ. All of those passages, all of that hope, all of that expectation was pointing to the chosen one. And Matthew is establishing Jesus in that context as the chosen one. That leads us up to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, let's listen to one other, or think about one other nuance that Matthew is uh, drawing out in those same passages, those same events from Matthew 1 to 4, there's another idea that Matthew is putting in our head. If I told you that the Bible talks about a man who has to flee because his life is going to be taken, and so he flees to Egypt, it tells you about a man that is going to have to go into the wilderness for a period of 40-something if I told you that the Bible tells you about a man who is going to have temptations of hunger and temptations to doubt God's promises, who would you think I'm talking about? Moses. Moses. <laughs> so I've got not just this Old Testament generic context of prophecy in the chosen one. I have this very specific Moses context. Who's got Matthew 4, 1 through 10? Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, 
it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. <coughs> then the devil took him by the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear up you up. Least you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test again. The devil took him the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to give you if you will fall down and worship me. What was Jesus tempted by? Hunger? Fear, that is, doubting God's plan for the future. And national power, worldly power. Moses, as the representative of Israel, that's what Moses is, how did Israel do with these things? Failed. Failed on all three fronts. The history of Israel is failure on these particular temptations. Failure in the desert. Not trusting God for food. Failure in the wilderness. Not trusting God to lead them to the promised land. Failure in being satisfied with the promised land. The history of Israel is a failure on these particular temptations. And so for four chapters, from the genealogy to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew is setting the stage for this is the chosen one of whom all those prophecies spoke. He is the new Moses, and he, this Moses, will do what Israel failed to do, what the first Moses failed to do. He will conquer these temptations. And so then all of that section culminates with John the Baptist saying, clear the way, <laughs> clear, clear the decks, get rid of all these other chumps. <laughs> they can't get it done. Here is the one who will get this done. Here is the one who will usher in the second exodus and he will be expected what jesus will do is finish the job bring his people into the promised land let's remember one more thing about moses who's got deuteronomy 32 48 to 52 that very day the lord spoke to moses go up this mountain of the abarim mount nebo which is in the land of moab opposite jericho and view the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel for a possession, and die on the mountain which you go up, and be gathered to your people, as Aaron your brother died in Mount Hor, and was gathered to his people, because you broke faith with me in the midst of the people of Israel, at the waters of Meribah Kadesh, in the wilderness of Zinnah, and because you did not treat me as holy in the midst of the people of Israel. For you shall see the land before you, but you shall not go there, into the land that I am giving to the people of Israel." Did Moses inherit the land? No. Moses failed. He didn't even enter the land. So this new Moses is going to come, the fulfillment of all these prophecies, the chosen one, the one who has already resisted all the temptations that threw Israel aside, and this one, now our expectations are set. If he is who Matthew says he is, he will get the job done. He will usher his people into the land. So if you are a Jewish hearer, 
I've set the context with this genealogy. I've, to- I've made my claims on who this guy is. I've read you all my Old Testament prophecies. I've shown you what, what, how his life is going to be the fulfillment of all of those promises. I've drawn the connection to Moses. I've got John the Baptist telling you, this is the one. Ding, 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 big light, spotlight. This is the one. And then Jesus walks onto the scene. What do you expect Jesus to start doing in that context? New Moses will do what? What did Moses do? Moses came down the mountain with what? He gave the people God's word. He gave them the law. That's the the defining moment of Moses' career. It's coming down the mountain and giving the law. And so what do you expect the new Moses to do? That. To come out and teach. You expect teaching and specifically law. If you're a Jewish hearer, this is what you expect to do given the context that Matthew has established. That's why Matthew, in his gospel, gives either the whole or most of this particular sermon in this moment. Because this makes a ton of sense to a Jewish hearer who has picked up on everything that Jesus is claiming to be. So that is the context of the Sermon on the Mount. What the hearers expect, if you're a Pharisee especially, what you expect is for Jesus to stand up and affirm the law of Moses. And what you expect is that that's going to be a big pat on the back for you because you're a Pharisee. Nobody loves the law of Moses better than you do. And what Jesus is going to show, this is the great sort of, uh, it's not a bait and switch, but the great irony of the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus is going to teach the law of Moses and he's going to show the Pharisees that they're completely against Moses. They're going to show the Pharisees that they do not follow the law of Moses, which is ultimately what they're going to accuse Jesus of and will be their pretext for killing him. So what Jesus will come to do is to bring clarity to the law of Moses. The Pharisees, expecting a pat on the back, get a slap in the face, and then this will set the context for why the Pharisees will eventually want Jesus killed. Is that what they're going to say is, no, 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 we're right about the law of Moses, and Jesus is wrong. And that's one of the reasons why we're going to spend two weeks, at least, on the Sermon on the Mount. This week, we're just going to talk about the context and the organization, the structure, sort of different ways people have interpreted it. And then next week and maybe the week following, we'll get into some of the specific teachings. But the reason I emphasize this so much is it's the most important contextual teaching of Matthew. It's the most important, unique to Matthew teaching. Because whether or not Jesus stands in line with the law of Moses or opposed to it is the difference between whether you're going to be shouting out, you are the Messiah, or crucify him. It's that important. That's what the distinction will be between those groups of people in the end, was whether or not they see Jesus as standing with Moses in the line of faithfulness, or their own self-righteousness is standing with Moses, and therefore Jesus is the heretic and the one who has to be dealt with. So this is really, really critical stuff. What questions do you have? audience would have been predicting or expecting more law and more 
teaching more truth. Um, I, I mean, we know that God is, is truth and grace. Like, would they not have expected grace in addition to? They, no. It's like it was no, no grace at all. Just give me law, give me teaching. That's all I wanted. Let me talk about that later. But okay. their law gospel distinction is not a hard black line like many people in the modern churches. Uh, and that'll be part of the challenge with interpretation of this, is law and gospel are certainly distinct. But are they enemies or are they friends? And that's going to be the question throughout the sermon, is are they enemies or are they friends? And the Pharisees will hate the sermon because they think that they're enemies. And um, the Gnostics, the let me just say, the Gnostics will, will hate it because they'll say that they're enemies. And I don't think that Jesus says they're enemies. I think Jesus says that they're friends. Uh, but we'll get to that. All right, organization of the Sermon on the Mount. By the way, I wrote this one up here to remind me, and so I'll just tell you now. Do you want to hear what a sermon should be? Because we were talking about preaching before class. Um, Sovereign Grace, PCA in Charlotte, Uh, search iTunes or search the internet and find the sermon that Dean Turboville preached in December on that passage. I had the title of it. It's the pilot light of history is what it's called. That's what a sermon should be. If you listen to that this afternoon, you'll have heard one good sermon today, I guarantee it. Um, everything we talked about before class is in that, and it's a really important sermon for people to hear. Um, anyway. It's that, that's the passage about Herod killing all the children. It's amazing. Uh, that guy could preach. All right. Organization. Structure of the Sermon on the Mount. It's not as random as it seems. I know it seems like because the sermon is so full and because it has so many teachings in it and so much variety of teaching in it, it can seem a little random, but it's actually not. There's, there's some pretty clear organizational structure, uh, coherent structure within it. So this first section is about kingdom disciple. And as you see these sections, hopefully you'll start to think about why I'm saying this sermon is so important to us. Why the fact that we get the Sermon on the Mount right is going to be so important for our faith and for what we believe. This kingdom disciples section is what does it mean to be a part of the kingdom? What's included what do we get from being a part of the kingdom? And what's required of us? Because we are part of the kingdom. That's kingdom disciples. And so what, what is that section going to have? When I say what do we get as being part of the kingdom, what should immediately come to mind? Even if you don't know what's in that chapter, there's a very famous part of the Bible that is about what we get for being part of the kingdom. Blessed is exactly the right answer. Which passage in the Sermon on the Mount is about blessing 500 times over? The Beatitudes. That section includes the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes is not a quid pro quo, to use a dangerous modern expression. If you do this, you will get that. The Beatitudes are the dispensing of covenant blessings. And I'll talk more about that later. When you are in the kingdom, you are these things. You are meek. You are a peacemaker. Part of being in the kingdom is that God makes you these things, working from within you. And because you are those things, you, you participate in these blessings, including 
they shall see God, which is a pretty big blessing, right? So the Beatitudes are not, hey, do this and you get a little bit of that. They are, this is what it means to be a kingdom disciple. God does this work in you and he blesses you in these ways. It also includes the salt and light passage. This idea of letting your light shine, that part of being a kingdom disciple is that we don't hide our light under a bushel. We, we show the world the work that God is doing within us. And so that is the kingdom disciples section. Then you get into 517 to, goes on a long time, 48, Jesus' view of the law. This is where you have uh, six antitheses. This is where Jesus shows the Pharisees that even though they think that they're with Moses, he's with Moses, and they're against Moses. This is where you've got the, you've heard that it was said, X, but I tell you Y. And those things are not actually in conflict. Jesus is drawing out the way that the Pharisees are stopping before they get to the fullness of what the law required. They're taking a part of Moses that they can do and ignoring the part of Moses that they can't do and saying this is real and that one's not. And so Jesus is going to correct all of that. The biggest difference between Jesus and the Pharisees is this with respect to the law. Jesus came to fulfill the law, to actually do what the law demands. The Pharisees came to accommodate the law to themselves. That is the nature of legalism. We tend to think of legalism as being unnecessarily strict. But legalism is actually unnecessarily lenient, dangerously lenient. Because what legalism says is, I'm going to change the law into the thing that I can do and apply that standard to my heart and to yours. And I'm not going to pay any attention to the parts of the law that I can't do. So I'll tithe on my garden herbs. But don't ask me to love my neighbors enough to be generous to them. Right? That's the nature of legalism. It's not too strict. It's too lenient. And so Jesus came to actually fulfill the law in all of its demands. And the Pharisees came to accommodate the law to their own ability and preferences. That is what this section is about. We're going to talk a ton about that next week. 6, 1 through 18, then, highlights that distinction by talking about religious hypocrisy. Self-righteousness masquerading as righteousness, or the way I like to say it, sanctimony masquerading as sanctified. Sometimes there's a very fine line between being sanctified, being holy and righteous, and being sanctimonious, which is being self-righteous. And Jesus here draws out those differences with some concrete examples. He talks about righteous deeds. Excuse me. He talks about prayer. He talks about fasting. And what I would say about this section is that this is anti-kingdom living. And this is such an important section because this is not dealing with how the world lives. This is dealing with how so many in the church live. That their relationship to law is, again, one of accommodation, not one of fulfillment. 
And so this is anti-kingdom living. And that way, what you get neck in the next section is the contrast to that. 619 to 712 are kingdom living. This is how the self-righteous live. This is how those who are in the kingdom live. And so that's going to talk about the kind of stuff we really don't want Jesus to talk to us about. That section is where Jesus talks about wealth and worry and how we treat other people. Right? This is the worst section of the whole sermon for us. Because it's easy to look at religious hypocrisy with prayer and fasting and tithing and all this stuff and say, that is so bad should not do that. That's bad. And I know it when I see it. Even when I see it in myself, I know it and I hate it. But then we get to this kingdom living one, which is, well, how do I think about my wealth? And how much do I trust God with my future? And how do I treat other people? And then we go, oh, that, that's, it's complicated, Jesus. Don't, it's complicated. And then it makes perfect sense contextually that after you've drawn those contrasts, what are you going to end with? You wouldn't say it exactly this way, but it's what you mean. Eschatological warnings. That's a fancy way of saying what? That there are consequences for which kingdom you're in. That there's only two outcomes from this. You will end up in one place or the other, period. And what determines that is which kingdom are you a part of? What is your approach to God and to his law? And so in that section, you get three analogies because Jesus teaches us with analogies sometimes. He talks about the narrow gate and the wide gate. What's the point of that analogy? Don't follow the crowd. I'm going to oversimplify this. Don't follow the crowd. What most people are doing is not kingdom living. What most people are doing is anti-kingdom living. The way that leads to the narrow gate, few find it. Now, praise God, few can be a really big number in God's economy, but it's not the majority of people. When you look around this world, the majority of people are not practicing kingdom living as kingdom disciples. They are practicing anti-kingdom living, right? Jesus gives the analogy of good fruit and bad fruit, which really isn't about fruit. What's that analogy really about? It's not about the fruit. It's about the tree. It's about what you're producing, right? The fruit is how you judge a tree. But the, which kingdom is the tree planted in? And then he ends with wise and foolish builders. It's easier to build a house on the sand. It is harder to build a house on the rock. Kingdom living is hard. Anti-kingdom living, not so hard. But anti-kingdom living doesn't survive. It will be burnt up. It will be destroyed. And so Jesus uses those uh, analogies to help us. So that's the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. We've got these five sections, almost like five books from the new Moses bringing the new law. Y'all tracking with me here? Huh? Yeah. All right. Questions about that part, and then we'll get into the history of interpretation or different ways to understand the sermon. Y'all quiet today. So I had a, an 
So next week you may feel that way about mine too. <laughs> but I'm interested to see as I go through these interpretive buckets, you tell me which one she fit in because I think I know, but I don't know for sure. So she and I may end up being in different buckets, uh, so to speak. Let's talk about, and when I say buckets, I mean views, how to interpret and understand the Sermon on the Mount. Um, what's our What's our framework? What do we think is happening here in these passages? Big picture, looking at the whole thing, what is Jesus doing? Lots of people get this sermon wrong. Lots of people in the history of the church and today get this sermon wrong. And as I've told you before, when you, when you, how you understand this has big impacts for how you live and how you think about the church and how you think about the law in general. Because really, those are the two questions that every framework, every interpretive view has to answer is, what does this sermon say about the law? And what does this sermon say about Christ? Those are really the two critical questions that we have to answer. And if you get those wrong, or in my view, what is wrong, um, it's going to, you're going to have the ability to abuse this passage. There are things in the Sermon on the Mount that you can abuse, that you can use wrongly in your life because you don't understand what's being said. Um, so let's talk about these. All right. View one. View one is that what Jesus is bringing is the Old Testament law plus a little. How's that for technical? Um. This was the view of Augustine. This was the view of the early church. That what Christ brought in this sermon is the real intent of the Old Testament law. So it's not that Jesus adds something that wasn't there before. It's that Jesus adds something that wasn't seen before, wasn't understood before. So the Old Testament law hasn't changed but Jesus comes to bring us more clarity about what the law originally said. So in this view, it's not the law that's different. It's our understanding of the law can be more full after the Sermon on the Mount than before it. Does that, that make sense? He's not adding something new. He's giving more illumination. Right? You read John 1 yourself. You had a certain level of understanding. Then you heard an amazing sermon on John 1. Now you have greater understanding. And what Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount, in this view, is an amazing sermon that brings more clarity than the world had ever known about this. And that makes a lot of sense. That view is, is certainly understandable given the context of St. Augustine and the early church. That context being, on the one hand, they're dealing with the, the Gnostics, who just deny the Old Testament having any connection to Jesus at all. And so they're trying to say, no, 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 this is extremely connected. It's actually the same law. But on the other hand, dealing with the Jews, who made the Old Testament so paramount and wore as a badge of honor that they had complete understanding of it, and obviously they did not. And so this view makes a lot of sense in that context. 
View two, and these numbers are totally arbitrary, is Old Testament plus a lot. So this is the view of the medieval Roman Catholic Church. And this view is extremely common today for understanding this passage. And that is that Jesus did actually add something new. That Jesus took the Old Testament law and raised the bar. That he added requirements to it. That the law was hard then, and Jesus makes it even harder. That Jesus uh, makes things more difficult. Jesus makes it more holy because the Old Testament was only concerned with externals and now Jesus adds this internals component and so Jesus has ratcheted ratcheted things up a notch have y'all heard that view taught before that's a pretty common view of this passage the Old Testament taught one thing Jesus took that but because we like to say Jesus is about grace Jesus is about the heart we say that's what happened here the Old Testament wasn't about the heart now Jesus adds that. No, look how much harder it got. It used to be a sin to actually commit adultery. Now it's a sin to think about adultery. Ah, Jesus made it so much harder. It used to be a sin to kill somebody, and now it's a sin to want somebody dead. Ah, Jesus made it harder, right? That's this view. Um, so think about what would happen as a, as a natural consequence of that view. This view became really popular or common in the medieval period of history. So if Jesus makes this law that difficult, I can't even look at a woman without sinning. I can't even think about my stupid neighbor without sinning. What reaction are Christians going to have to a law that cannot be kept in the real world? That's one. License, that's what half the crowd did. What did the other half of the crowd do? This is when the monastic movement came into existence, you guys. Just retreat. I can't keep this all in the real world, but I can keep it in a cell by myself where I don't interact with other people and someone brings me my food. Right? That's where all that came from. All that comes from this idea that the law is so hard to keep, it can't be kept in the real world so I can keep it in this fake world. Right? Which you can't, but that's where all that came from. You need to remove yourself from the world. If you're going to be pure, if you're going to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, you're going to react one of two ways. Either as Stephen said, not happening. <laughs> Why try? Or, well, it could happen if I put myself in a cage and don't interact with any other people ever. Right? Which again, I can't, but it was a way of fooling themselves. So that's where the ascetic view, the separation came from. U3, how am I doing on time? Uh, all right. U3, totally new law. Um, this view was popular among the Anabaptists. Anabaptists is a big word. Anabaptists were kind of the non-reformed crowd. Now it's your Baptist church, your non-reformed Baptist churches, your charismatics, your non-denominational. Most of them are in the stream of Anabaptist history. And what the totally new law says is that Jesus brought a new ethic for a new people of God. That this is for the church. 
This is the new ethic where Israel was concerned with externals. That's why they had all those external laws, washing and purity, all that stuff. What Jesus brings for the church is a concern with the inside, not the outside. It's a new law. So Jesus is abrogating the Old Testament law. He's telling you, New Testament Christian, throw away your Old Testament. There's a new thing here. And Jesus is this new thing with a totally new law. Those externals, none of them matter. All that matters is the heart. No churches today take that view, do they? That's the dominant view of churches today, is that whenever you talk about holiness, you're talking about Old Testament pharisaical legalism, because what God knows is your heart. What God knows is your desires. Well, that's exactly right. God does know your heart and your desires. And you know what else reflects your heart and your desires? What you do. What you do reflects your heart. Out of the heart flow evil deeds and sinful words and all these things. So on one level, they're right. They're just not drawing the connection there. So this view says, no, no, no. Throw away all that Old Testament stuff. Uh, what, did, what did he say? Do what with the Old Testament? Unhinge. Unhinge. Unhinge yourselves from the Old Testament. Is that what he said? Unhinge? It's unhitched. Unhitched. He came unhinged, but he said unhitch. Unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. That's what he's saying, right? And, and he's, he's trying to say that in a way as to not disconnect himself from Jesus. He's not anti-Jesus. He thinks that Jesus is, is, is throwing out the Old Testament and bringing something newer and better and fresher and holier and more internal than external. He's making exactly the same mistake that the Pharisees made just on the other side of the coin. Right? Everybody who says these are just disconnected is making that mistake. And what Jesus is fixing in this sermon is exactly that mistake. No, I'm not against that. I am that. You people have just forgotten what that is. And that is holiness, which comes from God. Um, so they're saying that, uh, incidentally, when you take this view, <laughs> if you follow it to its logical conclusion, you have to take extremely literalistic interpretations. Not literal. We take a literal interpretation. Literal considers context. Literal considers that a parable is not historical narrative. Literal considers cues from the author and emphasis and hyperbole and, and writing conventions, context and tone. You can read something literally and take into account all of that. What is the author's intent? Literalism doesn't say what's the author's intent. Literalism says what exactly are the words on the page in their most rigid and strict meaning. And to take that view that Jesus is totally disconnected from the Old Testament, abrogating it, bringing in a totally new law for the church and for the people of God, you have to take that literalistic point of view. Otherwise, you can't make sense of a bunch of these verses. So the Anabaptist tradition, this is no longer the case because the Anabaptists themselves are much more consistent than modern people from the same line of thought, um, that's why, just as an example, that's why they're pacifists. Why are Anabaptists total, complete pacifists? Because turn the other cheek. Right? You can't take that in context. You can't take that with its tone. You can't take that in, in the bigger picture of what the Bible says about justice and about all these other things. You just have to take the absolute literalistic approach of you can never cause violence or participate in the cause of violence to anyone. And you get those levels of interpretation. 
Um, so that's just one example. All right, view four is the impossible ideal. Luther's point of view. Luther, how did Luther understand the law? What was Luther's view of the law in general in the Bible? You know, we talk about three uses of the law, right? Just the fact that the law exists restrains evil in society. Even among people who don't want to keep it, the fact that the law is written on our hearts is why people don't go around just murdering each other nonstop and stealing each other's stuff. Then we talk about the law as showing us our own sin and our need for Christ that we can't perfectly keep the law. And then we talk about the third use of the law, which is it shows Christians how to live. It shows us how to walk with Christ. What did Luther think about the law? Only the second use matters. The only thing the law is good for is showing us that we can't keep it. The law is an impossible ideal. And so the sermon itself is what you are supposed to keep which Jesus knows you cannot and you will not. So we would say that's one of the three uses of the law, that that is a part of what Jesus is doing. When Jesus says, be perfect as your heavenly father's perfect, he's making it pretty clear that there's a standard we can't keep here. But the response from Jesus is not, so forget the first and the third use. The response from Jesus is, don't think that the first and the third use can save you. They can give you a better life. They can help you walk closer with Christ. They can give you a life where you please God with the things that you think and say and do, but they can't save you. Luther says, well, if they can't save you, who cares? The whole point of the sermon is simply to draw you to Christ. That's, that's, um, it only exists to crush you, to make it clear that you cannot possibly keep this. All right, questions about that? Yep. Uh, is that why I feel like I've heard people talk about Luther's view on preaching was you need the gospel every Sunday? Crush people. Yeah, there's a view. And now that view was common in Lutheran churches, and then Lutheran churches mostly went liberal. So now the Presbyterians have stolen that view of preaching. And it's tough because there's a fine line between what we would all call preaching Christ from all of the scriptures um, and what they're doing. What they're doing is preaching the crushing load of the law and the salvation that comes from faith from every text. Well, that is the most important thing we'll ever know. I grant them that. It is not the only thing we'll ever know, and it's not the only thing the Bible teaches, and it's not, in fact, the only thing the Bible teaches about Christ. The Bible teaches that we are with Christ in that, in his passive obedience, his death, his resurrection for our sins, it also teaches that we are in Christ in his active obedience, keeping the law, walking in holiness, loving our neighbor as ourselves, loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The law is not useless to us, especially once we've been saved. The third use of the law is as important as the second. And the fact that I just said that sentence, there's a whole bunch of people in Presbyterian faithful pulpits this morning who'd be horrified at that sentence. But I'd say it again. After we've been saved, the third use of the law is as important as the second. Two parts of Christ. You, can't, you don't get one without the other. Great question. All right, view five is ethical God. These are the people who love Jesus but don't know him. Uh, this is liberalism. This is where you just moralize the whole thing. 
it's obvious you can't keep exactly what Jesus said in this. But y'all, listen to the stuff he said. Wasn't he a great teacher? Aren't these such good, generic ideas? Um, if you think these are great and you do them more than you don't do them, that's what God's looking for. He's looking for people who read the Sermon on the Mount and think, those things are good ideas. I would like to do some of those things sometimes. Right? That's the ethical guide view. Obviously, that one is, uh, is pretty common as well. Just these are great sounding ethics. View six is, uh, this is Israel's law. So the polar opposite of this one, view three, is that the Sermon on the Mount is for Israel. This is Jesus making his last ditch effort to get the Jews to go along with God's plan. This is Jesus offering uh, God's ultimate plan for ethnic Israel. This is Jesus who came first to the Jews, giving them the chance to receive their Messiah. It's given by Jesus in the context of Israel. That's what all that other stuff I had on the board was. It's, and therefore, it's a description of how the millennial kingdom will be set up. So dispensationals uh, interpret scripture to say that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years on earth, on the throne of David, over a kingdom that is peaceful. And what this view says is that's what Jesus is describing in this sermon. Jesus is describing what his millennial kingdom will be like. The people in his millennial kingdom will do these things and not those things. And so Jesus in this sermon is actually trying to set up that kingdom. He's trying to inaugurate it. Hey, people, this is what I'm going to do. And then instead of accepting that kingdom, they killed him. And now in God's plan, God's going to have to bring Jesus back later uh, so that he can do that again. But eventually he'll set up his reign. And this sermon is what his reign looks like when it comes. Um, this sermon, and the reason they say that is the law of grace distinction. This sermon is law. There's no getting around that. This sermon is law. And so that's Israel. The church is grace. Israel's law. And that's how you know that this is for the one and not for the other. Um, questions about that? Let me finish with this then, and then my last, that clock is a few minutes fast, just so you know. Um, let me use my last couple minutes of grace just to tell you, I think I'm doing you a disservice if I don't really tell you what's wrong with this one. Um, the most important problem with that view is that it confuses the relationship between law and gospel. So getting back to your question earlier, Justin. The dispensationalists say that there is no gospel in the law. That with law, you have no gospel. But the truth is, without law, you have no gospel. There has to be something where we're failing, where we need grace. There has to be a burden on us that we need relieved. The good news can't just be good news. You went from neutral to neutral plus. The good news has to be you are crushed under the weight of the law. That actually applies to you. And now I come and I free you from that. Not by just taking it away, but by fulfilling it. Gospel without the law makes no sense. It doesn't save you from anything. It doesn't free you from anything. Um, without the law, the gospel has no context. It's not good news. It's just news. Um, it is the curse of the law that Christ bore on the cross. 
we have to remember what he died for. He died because the law demands death for sin, either ours or his. Um, And so it's the curse of the law that he bore on the cross. So that is the biggest reason why that view is wrong. It just doesn't understand the relationship between law and gospel. They're not enemies. They're friends. Um, And that's why the third use of the law is valuable for us on the other side of gospel. We get grace. Now the law comes back in as a really valuable teacher for how to how to uh, live. So there's a great uh, circular virtuous cycle here. A second reason why this is wrong is much less important, but it's just the details don't fit. If this is the so-called millennial kingdom of peace, why does God spend so much time talking about how to deal with self-righteous people and with enemies and with those who slap you in the face? And Jesus gives descriptions in the Sermon on the Mount on how to live in a world that is full of sin, in a world that is full of chaos and disorder and turmoil and persecution. Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount stuff that's relevant for the time in which we live, not this so-called kingdom of peace in which we'll have no problems whatsoever. So it doesn't fit the nature of the law and the gospel. It doesn't fit the time in which they're claiming that it would fit. That view is just totally broken. All these views are broken. They're broken in different degrees. Super broken, super broken, super broken, super broken, super broken, kind of broken. <laughs> right? And next week we'll talk about the right way. Um, but that one is really, really broken. Is this harsh law gospel distinction. Um, and it comes up on stuff like the, the, uh, the Westminster California guys. If any of y'all listen to podcasts or read things like Modern Reformation or the White Horse Inn, or like really, really good teaching, really solid stuff, 98% of the time. But they get this wrong, because primarily the teachers on that program are Lutheran. And their point of view is this very fierce law-gospel distinction. And that's what drives the type of preaching that John is talking about, is that in an effort to preserve salvation by faith alone, which is a hill worth dying on, But in an effort to preserve that, they fall off the other side. And they make this huge law-gospel distinction where the law just gets relegated to second-class citizen status. And Jesus does just the opposite in this sermon. 